welcome everybody. End of the month Q&A. A lot of fun topics that we're going to cover here today that have come in early. Things like, what does it mean to be a lukewarm Christian? Is there any evidence that the Egyptians actually had Hebrew slaves? Uh, what do we say if someone believes that they are one with the universe and that there is no self? Is Jesus a recycled myth? Does the Kalam cosmological argument fail because ignorance is an evidence? And then also, does morality change as our understanding of it changes? And here, understanding the difference between epistemology and ontology. So those are all the questions that we're going to be talking through, as well as your questions that you have. You can send those in. Again, a couple different ways. If you're watching this after the fact, you can like and subscribe on social media and you can send in the questions ahead of time on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, however you want to do it. Those links are in the description below. If you are here joining me live, you can type in your answer there or your question, I guess, and put a little cue in front of it. That way I know it's you sending that to me rather than you guys interacting in the live chat, which is always fun to see. Uh, but you can send in your questions and then I will throw those up to the top. And then also if you want to call in and have a conversation with me, you can text the number below here. I I have it right there, 714-989-6927. Again, this is a Google Voice number. You just text your name and your question to that number. You will receive a link, and then you can come on and join the show uh, with your audio. So um, those are all different ways that you can connect, whether you're watching this live or listening after the fact. This is happening every month. Now, let me uh, inform you, I guess, of one quick change before we jump into the questions today. Um, I'm going back to school here in just uh, next week. I start work again. We're going back on campus, which means I'm going to be there until about 3 or 3.30 or so on Fridays. So I can no longer start the live Q&A Fridays at 3. Now, I might be getting done earlier on like Wednesdays and Thursdays. I can change the day. So uh, what I would love for you to do is uh, comment below or send me a message on social media uh, if there's a preferred time that this would work better. Um, I know today is different because I'm taking off here in a little bit, but um, if there's a preferred time or day that works better, maybe it's the last Thursday of the month or the last Wednesday of the month, uh, maybe it is Friday you like, but I can probably only start as early as 4 or 4.30. Um, so I'll figure all that out. We got a month to figure that out before the live Q&A at the end of August. But um, just kind of have that in the back of your mind. And I'm kind of curious to hear what works for you guys and what is best. Um, also probably post something on the community tab on YouTube so you guys can vote and check that out. So uh, Eddie, welcome. Good to see you here. Um, all right, so we are going to jump in. Again, you can post your questions in the chat, but we have quite a few that came in ahead of time, and so we're going to jump into those. Uh, the first one that came in here on Instagram was, what does it mean to be a lukewarm Christian? Now, this um, often comes from, people are taking this from the book of Revelation. So let's jump there and see what does Revelation have to say about this. Uh, so looking here, Revelation chapter 3 is where this is often taken from, uh, where in this chapter, let me scroll there, there it is, the, uh, it is being written and spoken to the church of Laodicea, where it says, uh, starting in verse 15, I know your works, you are neither hot nor cold, or cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy 
from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may be clothed yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and the slave to anoint the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Um, so <clears throat> here's what I, I, I think is really important to understand when we look at this passage. Now, often when um, this is presented, I remember like one of the first times hearing this, and maybe it wasn't the first, but when I was in high school, I remember sitting in a Bible class and, uh, you know, I grew up in Colorado. And so uh, the Bible teacher saying, you know, back there we have seasons in Colorado. I don't know where you guys are watching from California. We don't really have seasons, which... I like, I, I'm, I'm happy to be out of the snow after growing up in it for so long. But anyways, uh, you said, you know, would you consider your faith more like the winter, the summer or the spring? And most of us students are like, I'm springtime because I'm not like reading my Bible every day and passionate and out evangelizing and always telling people about Jesus. But I'm not like cold. I'm not like turned off to God. I'm not like, you know, so like I'm spring. And that's how most of the students in the class responded. And then this teacher is very quick to be like, well, here is what we have. Revelation chapter three. I wish that you're neither hot nor cold, but you are lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And it kind of, a lot of us are like, oh man, what am I supposed to do? Like, and it kind of puts you in this weird position because how many of us are hot in that sense? How many of us are always on fire for God rather than kind of maybe a simmering or something like that? And then also like God wants us to be like cold. He wants us to be like against him. And I think this is a, a often misunderstood aspect to this. If we go back to this verse, notice what it says here in verse 16, or actually the end of 15. I know your works. You are neither hot, cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Is God really speaking here to the church in Laodicea saying, I wish that you were against me or for me, if that's how we want to take cold and hot. See, we have this understanding that hot is good, cold is bad. I want to suggest, if you have not heard so, I want to suggest a different interpretation of this. That both hot and cold are good. Both hot and cold are useful. Both hot and cold have a purpose. So here's what I think in my evaluation as I've studied Revelation and, and the, what is being spoken here to the Church of Laodicea. I think that what this passage is saying is that what it's saying is like, church, you need to be purposeful. You need to be used for a purpose. Hot water is good for purposes. It cooks food and cleans better and that kind of stuff. Cold water is good for baths or for cooling down things to when it's a hot day or, or maybe ice, you know, in putting on your injury or whatever it may be. Both hot and cold water have a purpose. And so what God is saying here is, I want you to be purposeful. I want you to live with a purpose. I want you to do something that you were created to do. But because you are lukewarm, you have no purpose. What purpose, what good is lukewarm water? You see, in the church of Laodicea, right, they had these aqueducts that brought in water from a long ways away. And oftentimes when the water would get to the city, it would have warmed, right? The cold water from the cold places, it became warm, it warmed up. The hot water from the hot places, by the time it got to the city, it had turned warm and it lost its heat. And so you have here this reflection or this understanding that in this place, they were getting warm water that was without purpose. It's not good for the cold, for the refreshingness to drink. It's not good for the heat, for the cooking. It is without a purpose. And we also see, as we read further on in this passage, this idea that the church of Laodicea, they were rich. And so it was like, hey, I don't need God, right? I, I, kind of they pushed God out in a sense, and they were relying on their own abilities. 
And God is saying, look, I wish, as it says here in verse um, 17, look, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. But the response is, I counsel you to buy gold from, uh, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself. And so I think that what we actually see here in the book of Revelation, chapter three, the church of Laodicea, and what does it mean to be this lukewarm Christian? I think a lukewarm Christian is a Christian who is not living for the reason that God has created him or her to live. That we claim to be a Christian, we've kind of pushed God out. That we say that we read our scriptures, that God is important, but we don't actually allow that to affect our lives. We don't um, have that change and influence our relationship. We don't consider God when we are making decisions. Maybe we pray about something, but really the Christian worldview and scripture doesn't have that much of an impact on our day-to-day life. I think that's what a lukewarm Christian is. I think that God desires for us to be passionate. God desires for us to be purposeful. And I think this is a lot easier way for us to live, right? If we believe that we have to always be on fire and evangelizing, that's not necessarily like our purpose is to know God, to make him known, to glorify him in the things that we do. And that can look very different in different areas of our life. Sometimes your purpose is to be a good student, but also maybe to talk to the friends in your class. Maybe your purpose is to be a good father or mother. Which, by the way, I don't know if you guys saw the exciting announcement. Here's a picture. Boom, my wife and I, we found out a couple weeks ago as I was preaching at church, uh, we are having a baby boy. So we are pregnant, about five and a half months, baby due in November. Super pumped. But that is us finding out it is going to be a boy. So I posted that as an update on social media. I don't know if you guys saw that, but that's super exciting. But sometimes your purpose is to be a good parent. You're be a good child. There's different times in our lives where we have different purpose. And I think what it's saying here is to live with a purpose, to do what God has created to do, to recognize his role in your life and how we are part and, and playing a role in the kingdom of God, that we are Christ's ambassadors, that God is making his appeal through us. What does that look like in our life? So a uh, good question. I think very often misunderstood, um, uh, but I think that this is what Revelation 3, at least, is talking about. Hi, Slam. Thanks for being here. Welcome, everybody. Um, all right, let's go to the live chat here from Eddie. What does it mean to deny yourself and pick up your cross daily? All right, let's read here and see what this passage has to say in its context. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save a life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angel in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they have seen the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So I think, you know, this is... Um, you know, important to kind of recognize as we look into this, of what Jesus is calling us to. What is he calling us to? And um, to take up our cross, right? It's not necessarily, again, saying like, you need to be crucified like I was crucified. Um, but this understanding is this, we are called to be disciples. We are called to be like him. And we must deny ourselves, our selfish desires, 
right? Because I think that, you know, there's a lot that goes into how we live and what kind of our comfort sometimes and our desires that we sometimes have. And I think that there's an aspect of this verse of picking up our cross and following him daily where you say, God, I am going to embrace you. I'm going to embrace your will for my life, no matter what that means, no matter the cost. I'm willing to put you first. Um, that may mean that my friends are going to um, criticize me. My friends are going to make fun of me at school because I'm going to stand up for you and I'm not going to deny you, but that is worth doing. Maybe that means I pick up and move to another country as a missionary. Maybe that means I just give extra to support someone. Maybe that means you can kind of think of that in your own context. But I think um, in short to say to deny yourself is to say, look, I have these desires I should need to reorient my desires to be that of God and his desires for me. God, what do you want me to do? And so this looks like we are praying daily, asking for God to lead us and guide us and that we kind of are approaching things, so to speak, you know, with an open hand because we say, look, I want to be like Christ. Christ had desires, right? He even pleaded in the Garden of Gethsemane before this. He says, God, if you will take this cup from me, Right? There, there's not, I think, a, a problem to say, God, I, this is difficult. But in the end, if God doesn't take it from you, and this is something that God is calling you into, are we willing to do it? And so I think that this is just a metaphor. This is Christ saying, look, you are called to be my disciples. Um, that we see this idea, the, the cost of discipleship, as it talks about, uh, what it looks like to follow Christ and to say, look, right? Very clearly, as it says here in this verse, right? Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To try to say, look, I'm, I want to be in control. I'm going to save my life. Um, he's saying, you're going to lose your life if you think that you're in control. Instead, being able to give ourselves up to God and say, God, you are in control. Your will be done, not mine. The same thing again that Jesus prayed in the garden. This gets Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. So, uh, Eddie, this is a really good question. Um, I think that is what is happening here in Jesus's command for us to pick up our, to deny ourselves, pick up our cross and to follow him daily. That This is a daily prayer. It's a daily prayer that I try to make for myself where I'm constantly saying, God, it's you every day. Let me do your will today. Let me do your will today. So hopefully that helps. Thanks for sending that in, Eddie. We're going to jump in to question number three. What if someone argues that there is no evidence the Egyptians had Hebrew slaves? So I got this in an email. Um, actually, no, this one came in actually on Instagram as well. But um, now this is a topic that I want to spend more time looking into. I've heard some interviews on this from archaeologists, and this is an area that I would say that I am lacking in, is, is in archaeology and biblical archaeology. And so I've been wanting to do a few interviews on these topics, on biblical archaeology. And so you can stay tuned if that's something that you want to see, and hopefully I can set something up here in the future. But I want to approach this from a slightly different angle. I want to say, let's say there is no evidence. Because I want to try to help you respond to say like, okay, what if you don't know if there's any evidence or not? What are you supposed to say when someone brings up this point and says, look, there's no evidence that the Egyptians had Hebrew slaves. Well, hopefully if, if this happens and you're not sure if there's evidence or not, you don't maybe jump to the conclusion that they want you to jump to. So by asking a question like, okay, so... Um, 
if someone says there's no evidence for the Hebrew slaves, I would say, okay, so what does that mean? Because it definitely does not mean that there were no Hebrew slaves, right? The, the, the common quote, the famous quote is that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Meaning just because we don't have evidence for something does not mean that's evidence against that thing. So for example, if you're trying to figure out who murdered Sally and you don't have any evidence that it was Bob, it doesn't mean that wasn't Bob. It could be Bob and that he left no evidence behind. Maybe he really, he cleaned up the crime scene very, very well. It possibly still could be Bob. What you're just left with is we don't know if it was Bob or not, if there's no evidence confirming him. But the fact that there's no evidence pointing to Bob doesn't mean it wasn't him. It could be. Now, if you have strong evidence that it was John, John killed Sally, and you know that there was just one murder, now you have good reasons to believe it was not Bob because you found the person. It was John. But if you don't have any evidence, it doesn't mean it wasn't this person. You're just not sure. And I want to suggest that the same thing is true here when it comes to the Egyptians having Hebrew slaves. Even if there was no evidence of Hebrew slaves in Egypt, it does not mean that they weren't there. It just means that we don't know. So I hope that if you're having this, con this conversation and you're not quite sure what to say in response, at least you can say, well, what follows from this? Because it's definitely that they not that they weren't there. The best you can say is if there's no evidence that they had Hebrew slaves, then we just don't know. Now, a couple of the questions that I would ask in response. Number one is, why don't you count scripture as evidence? Here we have historical documents that are included now in the Bible, right? Often people don't like including the Bible as evidence for anything. We often forget that the Bible is composed of 66 different books that are historical documents written to describe events that took place at certain times. And here in scripture, we have a historical document, the Exodus, talking about the Israelites being slaves in Egypt and being brought out of Egypt. So why don't they accept Exodus? Why don't they accept scripture as evidence? Now, it's possible that they just want right external corroboration, right? They want some sort of external archaeological evidence to confirm what happens in scripture. And that's it's a good point. I think that it's fun when we find that. But I think it's important to point out this is that even when we have archaeological evidence for something, it doesn't prove the biblical narrative true. Right? A lot of even atheists will bring up this case as well as like, well, you can show that Rome was a real place and you can show that Jerusalem is a real place and you can show all these things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's true. We can prove that David is a historical figure, King David, with the Tel Dan inscription. But that doesn't mean that everything written in scripture of David is true. And that is also true, right? Archaeological evidence, we have to take it in its proper, I think, place. Archaeological evidence is good to give more credibility to a story, to confirm certain details of the, of the story. But it doesn't necessarily prove that this story is true. But it confirms, it makes it more reliable. It makes it more believable when we begin to confirm different details about it. And so, you know, if I tell you a story of what took place about my day yesterday, and I include 10 details of what I did yesterday. If I can't prove, confirm, corroborate any of those 10 details, it might seem that my story is kind of 
I don't know if I'm going to believe you, Ryan. It's a little bit out there. Now, if I corroborate seven of the 10 details, I start to become a lot more believable. Now, is it possible I'm lying about the other three? Well, sure it is. But my story becomes more believable the more aspects of the story I begin to corroborate. So I think that this is a healthy approach when it comes to the evidence from archaeology as well. We've confirmed different details. It provides credibility of the biblical narratives, but it's not necessarily proof that what scripture says is true. It's possible that these cities are real, the people are real, but then what is said about them is made up. Now, do we have any good reason to believe what is said about them is made up? I don't think so. I think we have good reason to believe that scripture is true. Please hear me clearly on that. I just don't necessarily think it comes from the archaeological evidence. It's really cool when we find things that confirm details in these stories and it provides that awesome assurance and go, wow, isn't this awesome how this lines up well? So that would be one question I would ask is why don't they consider what is written in scripture as evidence? Why don't they take this as a historical document describing the events that took place? Second question is, I was asked is, what do you kind of expect to find? Now, in this conversation and when this question was sent in, it was because they said that the, the Egyptians documented everything. Now, one question I would ask is, well, what Pharaoh is going to document this event? Right. It's, you know, a Pharaoh's like, Hey, I'm, I am God, right? I am, I am the most powerful and important person. And here a bunch of Hebrew slaves tricked me or one Hebrew person tricked me, was able to take all the slaves out into the desert. And then when I realized my mistake and I chased after them, the sea opened up, God, the God that we don't believe in performed a miracle, opened the sea up, allowed them to escape. And then as we chased them across the sea, swallowed us up and killed us all. Who's going to write that about themselves? Like, I think that there's good reason to believe why that was possibly not included in some of the details. That is extremely embarrassing. And we often, even when we tell stories today, leave out those embarrassing details. So these would be some questions I would ask in response of what Pharaoh would document this if we're claiming they documented everything. Well, everything we know of, they documented. I'm sure there's other details that they have not documented for whatever reason. Um... Why not consider scripture as part of this evidence? And then lastly, um, what about, what about these other details? And, 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 and how do we actually approach evidence to begin with? Does this actually prove the opposite? And I don't think that it does. All right. Next question. Question number four, I believe. How would you respond to someone who said that we are one? Well, that's supposed to be one. Sorry that we are one with the universe. Can I change that here really quick? Oh yeah, there we go. As I'm talking, that we are one with the universe and that there is no self. So this did come in from an email a question. They were saying to me saying, hey, I met this person. I'm part of this class and I met a friend of my class and they are Buddhist and this is what they believe. What can I say? Now, I think that there's a lot of interesting things here, but again, starting with some basic questions of, what do you, what do they mean, right? If you're talking to them, what do you mean that you are one with the universe? What does that look like? Now, you know, there's many different kind of ways in which people discuss this and kind of a most basic kind of Buddhist belief when it comes to being one with the universe is that there is kind of this one consciousness or one energy that makes up all the universe. And then you have different types of this where some believing that the physical world is an illusion, the, the physical is, is not real. All there is, is this 
divine self, so to speak, and that it consists of everything, this idea of pantheism, that God is all, and we are just a individual or a separation or a single instance of that divine kind of energy, that divine consciousness. And then our goal in meditation and through different forms, uh, different aspects of, of meditation and thinking that we are going to reconnect to um, that divine energy or that divine consciousness. So I would ask, okay, what, is, what do you actually mean that there is no self and, and that you are one with the universe? And then number two is, how did you come to that conclusion? How do you know that you are one with the universe? Where do you learn this from? And if it's someone that said it, okay, then how do we know that what they said is actually true? Is there any reason or evidence to believe that you are one with the universe? And then lastly, the question I would ask in the last part is, if there is no self, who is talking to me? Who is talking to me? Um, who are we? Ha who's having a conversation right now? And if there's no self, then who am I? I am talking to you. Like what this does is, and what's difficult about this sort of belief system is it disconnects reality from kind of this religious belief that I believe that there is no self. I believe that we are one with the universe. I believe maybe that the physical world is not real. However, I can't have to actually live that way. Right? There's a common joke for, you know, if, if uh, someone says the physical world is not real and you're standing next to a road, they're like, okay, well then step out in the road and see what happens when the big truck comes down the road to hit you. Obviously, we believe there's something real about the world and the money that we use to exchange and buy and sell and uh, the cars that are coming towards us and the food that we are eating. And so this is a belief that people have, but it's almost unlivable. Well, then who are you talking to and who are you trying to convince like you're telling me that there is no self. First of all, who's telling me this? And second of all, why are you telling me this? Because if there is no self, then you and I are actually one. We are all the universe. So the universe is telling the universe that there's only the universe. Like this kind of just gets very confusing. And I think you can see kind of how it is very difficult to know. So um, I would be interested in um, hearing back. And if you are watching, um, I will would love to hear if you continue these conversations with this person and maybe how they answer some of these questions and you can respond and write back. Um, but I would, that's what I would be curious of. What evidence do they have that supports that this is actually real rather than just a claim that someone makes? I think there's good reason to believe we are not one with the universe. There's clearly a separation between us and the people around us. Um, and this is good reason to believe that there is a self. I think there are good arguments for the self, uh, that we maintain identity through change. Even though our physical body changes, our identity remains the same. I was the same person that existed 30 years ago and I exist now and I will exist as long as I live. And even though my interests change, even though my body changes, even though my passions maybe change, it's still me. There's this unifying self that maintains our identity. So I think there's good reasons to believe there is a self I think this leads strongly to a Christian worldview that there's something aspect, there's some aspect about us that is not just our physical body. Uh, and those would be some of the things that I would like to hear. Um, awesome. Um, all right, here in the live chat, Slam, thank you so much for putting this in. Um, yeah, she says, uh, there is actually very little documentation from the Egyptians in the ancient period because the papyrus was easily destroyed due to humidity of Averis, where the Hebrews were. We have the king lists. 
And so, yes, yeah, so there's other reasons, again, why uh, possibly some of this documentation has not survived. It's a long time ago. It's a really, really long time ago. That's why we're amazed, right, when we have this archaeological evidence from thousands of years ago. Um, awesome. All right, we'll keep the questions coming. We're going to keep moving along. Um, I think that's, this is the one that I just did. Yep. And here is our next one. The Kalam fails. This came in on a, a video that I did with William Lane Craig. After the fact, I'll post that video right up here. Uh, so you can see as William Lane Craig describes the Kalam cosmological arguments. Um, and he says, uh, the argument fails because ignorance isn't evidence. So let's kind of work through this argument here really quick. If you're not as familiar with it, after I grab a nice cup of coffee. Um, probably the most common uh, way of phrasing the Kalam cosmological argument, argument again, based on the cosmos, the universe, the beginning of our universe says that whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, this is a deductive argument where if the two premises are true, then the conclusion follows logically and necessarily. And so the first one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Now, let me stop here and just point out that this idea of begins to exist needs a cause. It's not saying that everything has a cause, right? Because often then people say, well, then what caused God? That's why we say that, or that's why it's phrased. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. If things did not begin to exist, they didn't need a cause because they didn't begin. So our understanding of a God is that he did not begin to exist. Therefore, he does not need a cause. But whatever begins to exist has a cause an explanation for its beginning. Second premise, the universe began to exist. And here we have scientific and philosophical arguments and reasons to support the premise that our universe did in fact begin to exist. This is based on the most common, most popular understanding like Big Bang cosmology, where you know people even like Stephen Hawking said, you know, most scientists now believe that time and matter itself had a beginning at the Big Bang, that before this point, there was this infinitely dense point, the singularity, and that our universe came out of nothing. Uh, the expansion of the universe goes to point towards this idea. The second law of thermodynamics points to this idea that we are running out of usable energy. There have been other discoveries uh, where we have seen the you know, radiation afterglow from our beginning event. There's a lot of scientific documentation and reason to believe that our universe did in fact have a beginning. And so then that follows and leads to the conclusion that our universe needs a cause. Now, so based on this simple argument, this is not ignorance. This is a deductive argument. And there are scientific and philosophical reasons to support the two premises that then lead to the conclusion. So our conclusion then follows from everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, logically, necessarily, if those premises are true, that our universe has a cause. So if the physical universe, if all time and space and matter, our universe has a cause, it follows logically that whatever caused the time, space and matter to exist has to be timeless, spaceless and immaterial. That is not, again, ignorance. That is just following the logical progression of how this argument would work. We also would see that uh, all the power of our universe and the power it would take to create our universe, that whatever caused our universe to exist has to be extremely powerful. I think there's a good argument that can be made that in order to create, the cause would have to be personal. 
if it's not personal, it cannot choose to create. And therefore you have an eternal cause uh, that then somehow without choice, just all of a sudden created at one point in history. And that doesn't make sense. Like for example, um, if it is eternally frozen, you always have ice. There, if, if it goes from having water to ice, then you know that there's a point where it was not below freezing and then it turned to freezing. There was a difference. There was a change. But if the weather is eternally below freezing, you're eternally going to have ice. And so I think that without a personal cause, uh, it is difficult to understand how we went from a time of nothingness, of no universe, to a creation event uh, where a universe is created or caused or comes into existence uh, without a personal agent. And so, um, again, uh, these kind of arguments and, and kind of reframing a lot of the arguments that are made towards Christianity is, oh, this is an argument from ignorance. No, this isn't from ignorance. This is a deductive, logical argument based on what we know. We know that things that begin to exist have causes. All of science is grounded on this. We don't see things popping into existence uncaused. Things that begin to exist have causes. We know that our universe had began to exist. This is the best scientific understanding that we have today. And therefore, it logically follows our universe has a cause. What can cause it? Here are the attributes. Here are the qualities that can cause our universe. It needs to be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, powerful, personal, starting to sound a lot like God. So um, I, again, like I just want to kind of help us understand as we hear a lot of these comments and objections is we're not using ignorance. This is not an argument from ignorance. Neither are the other arguments for God's existence. This is a claim that's often leveled at Christians is that we're arguing from ignorance. It's, it's saying, I don't know what happened, therefore God did it. Did it. That's not what I'm saying. I hope that you don't hear that's what I'm saying. It's here's what we do know happened. What is the best explanation for it? Right? This is the same thing that we use in archaeology. We found a pottery set in the ground. What is the best explanation for a pottery set in the ground? Well, there must have been people that lived here. Even if we have no other evidence for people living there, the fact that we found pottery in the ground is evidence that someone was there at some point in time. Can you think of a better explanation for finding pottery buried underground? No, the best explanation is that someone put it there. Someone left it behind. There were people here at one point in history. And so we're looking at what we see, the pottery, and then we're drawing a conclusion based on what we see. There must have been people here. Now, if someone says, well, that's an argument. You don't know how the pottery got there. Right. But do you have a better explanation? I don't. The explanation that makes the most sense is that someone put it there. So the same thing is true when it comes to our arguments for God's existence. That based on the universe, the universe is there. How did our universe get there? The best explanation is that it was caused by some cause that was powerful, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and personal. The attributes of God. Same thing with the fine-tuning, the moral argument. We see objective moral laws in nature. What is the best explanation of these laws? This is not arguing from ignorance saying, I don't know what happened, but it's ba arguing based on what we do know. And again, I think we use the same approach in archaeology. So if someone raises this objection to you, well, that would be maybe a place to go is to say, well, hold on a second. How is this any different than archaeology? When we find something in the ground and we don't know how it got there, we assume it was people. Why? Because that's something that people do. It requires intelligence. It doesn't naturally form into plates and bowls and cups in the ground. Maybe you get some shape that kind of looks like a plate, a disc, but not a whole set. And so this would be the same thing that we are doing here. Um, all right. 
moving along, moving along. Again, if you have questions, you can always call in 714-989-6927. Haven't gotten a call in a while, but hey, it's still available. If that is something that you want to do, it is still available. Uh, we're going to keep moving along here. Um, is Jesus just a recycled myth? Uh, this was, this is a video. I did a video on this actually quite a while ago. And, um, and so this is kind of resurfaced. And so I, again, I'll post the video up here after the words. So you can check out that short video that I made. Um, but a comment came in on that video, uh, that I wanted to address. And the comment came in that I was lying pretty much, um, that this video is hundred percent lies and that everything I'm saying in this video is not true. Now I've addressed this before. This is like one of my pet peeves. Um, I've gotten over it mostly, uh, but it always bothers me. It's like, guys, I'm not lying to you. To, to claim that someone's lying, you have to know their intentions. It's possible that I'm wrong. It's possible that what I stated, I misstated something and what I said is not true, but I'm not lying. A lying is intentional deception. And I think that we often jump and call people liars and it's like, maybe they just said something wrong by mistake. And if you go, hey, do you realize that this is not true? And they might say, oh, wow, I had no idea. Thank you for pointing that out to me. Um, they might actually appreciate you correcting that. But um, uh, I, I'm not lying. And so uh, what was claimed though? And, and he sent me a video that uh, pretty much made claims that went against what I said in the video. Now, there's three things that I suggest uh, that I'll briefly mention and then kind of go over what he said uh, that I think that is good reason to believe that Jesus, Jesus is not a recycled myth. And the first one is this, is that there's no pre, excuse me, there's no pre-Jesus documented resurrection stories. Now, what's really important here, and here's where his objection was, is that there are people saying, no, before Jesus, there were people that would, that would gather together in certain temples, in certain locations, and celebrate the resurrection of their gods, like Osiris or Myth Mithras, or mainly this one was talking about Osiris. And this was happening 3,300 years ago, 3,500 years ago, clearly before the time of Jesus. Now, I understand that there are people saying that these things took place before Jesus. But the question here is this, do we have documentation pre-Jesus? Now, what I mean by this, and now I, I don't, I haven't laid, you know, laid this out with every single God. And so there's some difficulty here, but with some other gods that have resurrection stories, the stories actually come from the second and fourth to fourth century. Meaning that where we learn about what was taking place we learn about 200 to 400 years or so after the time of Jesus in the second to fourth century. So we don't have any documented. We don't have paintings on vases. We don't have paintings and in, in walls. We don't have writing uh, on paper. We don't have any documentation that this stuff was happening pre-Jesus. Instead, the claims that resurrections were happening or that they were worshiping dying and rising gods before Jesus died and rose from the dead uh, comes in the second to fourth century after Jesus. So this has led some scholars to believe that maybe they changed their story after the story of Jesus really caught on and became more popular. Then they started changing their story in order to match Jesus. Well, hey, our God died and rose from the dead as well. Hey, how about that? And these stories come later. The problem is we don't have documentation of a lot of these gods before Jesus that there's dying and rising. We haven't found pottery or inscriptions or papyrus or anything pre-Jesus that documents these things taking place. 
And so the video that was sent to me, and, and every time I've kind of got in this conversation with someone, this is what I've asked for. Do you have any evidence pre-Jesus of documented dying and rising gods? And I haven't seen any. Now, it's possible that it's out there. Maybe we just found something recently that I'm unaware of. But as far as I'm aware, we don't have this documentation. And so when the video that he sent me says, hey, 3,300 years ago, there were dying and rising gods. My question is, well, where did we get the information that this is what they were doing 3,300 years ago? Is it from a document or writing or something that came after Jesus telling us what took place before? Or do we actually have something before Jesus telling us what took place? So we'll see if there is a comment in response, but this is a really important thing to, to recognize is that there isn't this documentation. Now, we also have to recognize in this understanding that Jesus was a dying and rising God, is that these different stories that are often presented, they pick and choose the details. They kind of select, highlight different things that make it more similar and kind of ignore the things that are actually very different, uh, where they broke some bread and ate it, but it's not really what we are doing when we break the bread and eat it in reflection of the body of Jesus. And so there's different things like this. But even if these things are similar, we have to ask the question, well, why? And I think it makes a lot of sense. Why? Because if you are claiming that you have a God, well, what are gods normally like? Gods are all powerful. Gods are good. Gods have done some crazy and usual things like miracles. Maybe gods even die and come back from the dead. Like these are things that like, I don't know why we are maybe uh, expecting something different. This is what you would expect if someone is trying to convince you that there's this all powerful deity that you should worship, that you should pledge your allegiance to. Well, what makes this deity, what makes this being someone worth worshiping? They need to have done something crazy. So we should expect to see crazy stories about these other gods. That doesn't prove that the Jesus story is false. And this leads to, I think, the last point is that just because, even if a false story comes before Jesus, doesn't mean the Jesus story is false. Right? And so the common example here, it's really kind of cool, is, is that there is a story written about the futility, the sinking of the Titan, before the Titanic sunk. Talking about a great ship on its maiden voyage that struck an iceberg and it was sinking. There were not enough lifeboats. A lot of people died. And if you were to just describe the details of this fake made-up story, everyone listening would say, oh, that is the Titanic. But it's not. It is a false story that happened and was written, documented before the Titanic sunk. Does that mean that the Titanic story is not true? Does that mean that the Titanic is therefore false? The Titanic didn't actually sink? No, of course not. It's a crazy coincidence that someone made up this false story just years before the Titanic sank itself. So even if there are these stories of dying and rising gods pre-Jesus, the question still remains, is there any evidence to believe this story is actually true? And is there any evidence to believe the Christians stole from those stories and made up the death and resurrection of Jesus? Or do we have good reason to believe Jesus actually died and rose from the dead? And I think, again, when you look at the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus, when you look at the historical accounts and historical details, there is overwhelming evidence to believe that Jesus did die and rise from the dead. 
This is not a late legend. This is not a made up story by the disciples trying to trick people. This actually took place. So even if it, there are these parallels, doesn't mean that what Jesus did is false. We still have to look at what is the evidence that support for these different stories to see if there's any truth in them. And so I, this is where I don't think it's a problem. But again, a lot of claims are made. We have to come back to what is the evidence. Someone making a claim is not the evidence. And I think it's interesting, and this is my, what part of my response to this uh, post, is that uh, this was a video of some scholar making a claim, but not showing any evidence for it. Th this, and they just simply said, here's what took place. Here's what used to happen. But not how we know this is what took place. And the same way that Christians, if I were to send a video to someone of some Christian scholar claiming what took place without presenting evidence, the response I would get in return is, well, what's the evidence? Just because some Christian says it doesn't make it true. Exactly. And just because a scholar says it doesn't make it true. The question we should come down to is why is this person making this claim? Do they have any evidence to support it? So don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. If someone sends you a video of some scholar claiming something, go, oh my goodness, what am I supposed to do? The same thing as if you send them a video of a Christian claiming something. We need to come back to the evidence and say, is there any good reason to believe this is true? All right, hopefully that helps in, in looking at a few different responses to this idea, is Jesus a recycled myth? Uh, last question that I have that came in ahead of time, and we are getting close to time. We've got about 15 minutes left, so if you have questions, you can send those in in the live chat. Thank you guys so much for being here. Hopefully this is helpful. Um, I had this conversation uh, about morality, and the claim was made that morality is both objective and subjective at the same time. And I think, and, and what really showed in this conversation is a misunderstanding on something really important that I hope that we can understand and that I hope that I can explain clearly to you here in the last little bit of today's live stream. And that is the difference between two big words, don't freak out, epistemology and ontology. Now, if you've heard those before, awesome. If you haven't, here we go. Epistemology in short is the theory of knowledge. Epistemology is how we know what we know. How do I know things? What do I know? How do we know? How do we gain knowledge? Is knowledge only through science? Is knowledge through experience? Is knowledge through scripture? How do we know what we know? That is epistemology. Ontology deals with the nature of being. What is? And here's where this is so, so important when it comes to the topic of morality, is that we often hear someone arguing about how we don't know something, therefore it isn't the way it is. My knowledge about something has no bearing on what that thing actually is. Now, there's things that I don't know about God. I don't fully understand how God relates to time. I don't fully understand how the Trinity, you know, these sort of things I don't fully understand. But that doesn't mean that we can't know God truly. Just because I don't know something fully does not mean I don't know it truly. There are things that I know, like plants use photosynthesis to create energy. It's a true statement, right? I don't know how that works. I don't know how they convert the sun into energy. I've forgotten all that, but someone probably does. I don't know how it works, but that simply just says what I know that has no bearing on what is actually taking place inside the plant. What I know about something doesn't affect what that thing actually is. And what I believe about something does not affect what that thing is. Right? If I believe that I'm a millionaire, 
a million dollars is not popping into my bank account. If I believe that there's a Ferrari in my garage, there's not an actual Ferrari in my garage. What I believe about the world does not necessarily affect the world and what is. You can like something, doesn't mean it comes into existence. You can not like something, doesn't mean it comes out of existence. And so the claim that was made in the conversation that I had is that this idea that morality is both objective and subjective and that morality changes based on our subjective understanding. That as we learn, morality is changing. And what I would argue is, no, morality doesn't change. The ontology, what morality is, is not changing. But yes, our understanding of it is changing. Right? It's the same like when it comes to something like science. Let me get some water here really quick. There are things, if you look throughout the course of kind of the scientific revolution, there's a lot that we have learned that did not change how the world was working. But we learned better how it's working to be able to understand it, maybe manipulate it or, you know, do what we do. Like we fly because we better understand gravity and how air works and all that and aerodynamics. And it gives us now new abilities that we did not have before. But we didn't change gravity. We we're just understanding it better. There was a time where the entire world believed that the earth was the center, right, of our solar system, that the sun went around the earth. That didn't mean that the earth was actually the center. It means that the entire world or whoever believed that in the past was wrong. The sun was actually the center. They had a false understanding. And through scientific investigation, we have now learned that the sun is the center and that we are traveling around the sun. I would say that the same is true when it comes to morality. When we believed as a country that slavery was good in the 1800s and legalized slavery, that did not make slavery good. The, the morality of slavery did not change as our subjective feelings or our subjective thoughts about it changed. Slavery was wrong. We were incorrect in legalizing and promoting and whatever we were doing with slavery back in the 1800s. And those who stood up, like your Wilberforces, and said, look, because humans are created in the image of God, this is wrong. What they did was right because they were recognizing what is true about the world and speaking up against evil and injustice, even though the vast majority of people were arguing for the goodness of it, that it was a benefit. And they tried to argue pragmatically of it's helping the slave, right? Because we rescued them from some poor place and now we're giving them food and they have a house to sleep in and a bed to sleep on top of, and it's better for them. We recognize, no, it's not better to be enslaved rather than to be free. And so I think it's important as we look at this understanding of morality that yes, our opinions may change. Our feelings may change. What we know may change. We learn things. We forget things. But that doesn't change reality. Morality has an objective sense. Murder is wrong. Slavery is wrong. It is wrong to torture innocent children for fun. There are things that actually are wrong and it doesn't matter what you think about it. There's no changing here. And so this idea that somehow morality is both objective and subjective, let me just say here as we kind of are closing up, is that it can't be both. Morality can't be both. Something cannot be objective and subjective at the same time. These are mutually exclusive claims. So again, to try to frame this, if, if something is objectively wrong, that means the truth of it is based in the object, the thing, 
not the subject what I think. If something is a subjective truth, then the truth of it is based on what I think. It's my opinion. It's my preference. Right. And so if to say like it is raining outside, that is based on the rain, whether it's falling from the sky or not. That is an objective truth. What I feel about the rain, what I think about my rain, the opinion I have about liking rain or not liking rain doesn't matter whether it is raining or not. So in what sense does it mean to say that the rain is both objective and subjective? Well, there's a sense in which, yes, it is either raining or not, the object, objective aspect. And then there's the sense in which I understand or I see, I perceive the rain. What I think about the rain, I like rain, I don't like rain. That's true. So there is a subjective experience of the rain. But to say that moraine, the rain is both objective and subjective is kind of slightly changing these words. It's not either or. Either it's raining based on it, the objective, objective, or me and my opinion, like ice cream, right? That's a subjective truth. I like coffee ice cream. It's the best. You may say, no, chocolate ice cream is the best. No, mint chocolate chip is the best. Those are just our opinions. No one is actually wrong. And I think that's important to recognize as we come back to this understanding of truth. Is it a subjective truth? You can't be wrong. If I say I like coffee ice cream the best, you can't say you're wrong. No, I'm not. It's <laughs> what I like the best. I'm always right. If I'm stating my opinion, my belief, I'm always right. In objective truth, you can be wrong. You can say that it's raining and it's not raining. You're wrong. You can say that this earth is the center of our solar system and it's not. You can be wrong. And so in that sense, morality, ontologically speaking, morality is objective. Murder is wrong. That's what it is. If you believe that murder is a good thing, to kill innocent people without justification is a good thing, you are wrong. To believe that it's good to torture innocent babies for fun, you're wrong because it's not good. That is bad. And so there's an objective sense of morality. It does not change based on what we believe, what we think. Now, there are other actions that do change. What side of the road you drive on, right or left? Well, that depends on the country you live in, right? So we're not saying that every single belief or every single action that we take is an objective moral action. But if there's at least one thing that's objectively wrong, you have objective morality. And then it's not subjective. It doesn't depend on my feelings or my beliefs. Yes, I have thoughts about murder. I have thoughts about these moral actions, but my thoughts don't change it. Therefore, it's not subjective. And so this maybe can be confusing as someone tries to argue for this and tries to maybe play on words maybe a little bit or, or has this kind of understanding. But I think when you kind of piece these out and say, well, hold on. Yes, it can be subjective in a different sense, right? But the, based on the law of non-contradiction, right? Something cannot be true and not true in the same sense and in the same way. So morality cannot be objective and subjective in the same sense in the same way. It can't be, depend on my feelings and not depend on my feelings. It's either one or the other. Either something is right or wrong based on what I think, or it's right or wrong based on what it is. Now, yes, I have a subjective experience, but now we're talking about this in a different way. And so when it comes to morality, these are mutually exclusive claims that cannot both be true in the same sense and in the same way.
So hope that helps. Uh, those are all the questions that I have that came in. Again, let me, if you are joining late, let me just mention what I mentioned here at the beginning of the show is that um, I'm starting work again next week, which means I have to stay at the school a little bit later. I can no longer do the end of the month Friday live Q&A at three o'clock Pacific Standard Time. It will have to be moved maybe four, maybe 4.30, um, or maybe move to a different day. And so uh, we got a month to kind of figure that out, but I'd love to hear from you. When is the best time? Uh, is it later at night? Is it um, a different day of the week? Uh, to continue this time uh, to just say, hey, what are the questions that you have? And hopefully the questions that people are asking are similar to the ones that you have as well. And you can help think through these and maybe it's a different question, but there are, hopefully I'm trying to help you see there are principles, there are ideas of approaching these sort of objections and questions that hopefully you can then apply the same principle to other issues as well. So I hope that this has been a help. I hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Again, I would love just your support as well. Uh, if this has been a benefit to you, would you please share it with somebody uh, help them see it as well. Or maybe you've enjoyed the interviews that I do. Uh, more interviews are going to be coming up. And I, sorry, guys, I, I, man, I messed up my calendar. I told Andy Bannister the wrong day, or I thought the wrong day and everything just got messed up. So we are going to be rescheduling that. Unfortunately, he's busy. So he'll have to come back on later in the spring. My other interview got busy. Hopefully that's going to be rescheduled, but there are going to be some more interviews coming up. So if you've enjoyed those, uh, you can enjoy those. Again, there's always a chance to connect on social media uh, to send in other questions ahead of time for next month. If you're listening after the fact, or just to follow and keep up to date on what is happening, guys, I appreciate it. I love the fact that you're here and um, I hope that this is encouraging to you. I've had a lot of fun just being able to sit down and talk through the things that you guys send in. So thank you so much for being here. Have a blessed and wonderful rest of the day. I will see you guys again next week. Have a great weekend. Bye, everybody. I just